Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 7. We're back in Romans. We took a couple month break, and now we're picking up in Romans chapter 7, first Sunday of the year. Practical wisdom would say warm it up a little bit, get us get the cobwebs knocked off, but no, we're going to jump in one of the more theologically complex chapters in all of the Bible. Happy New Year. I'm going to read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. If you're visiting with us for the first time, um, this may, it may take you a while to get your bearings. We're going to do a little bit of a rehash to kind of orient you to where we are so far in Romans as we've been just working through it for the past year, and we'll be in it, Lord willing, for this next year. I really think it's important for you to have your own copy of God's Word in front of you. In fact, you know what? Um, I think instead of having the scripture up on the screen, I'd, I'd really like for you to have your copy of God's Word right in front of you. You don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Bibles that's in front of you. And in fact, if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that as, as our gift to you. We'd love for you to look at it. Um, but let's, let's just stare at Romans chapter 7. We're going to look at the first six verses. Let me read it and pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, verse 4, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us, help us understand this text. Father, thank you for your word, and we can gather, and we can read your word, and we can pray your word, and we can sing your word, and we can preach your word, and then we can respond to your word, and then we can come around your table where we can remember the word made flesh, Jesus, whose body was broken for us and whose blood was spilled for us so that we might know you. Lord, thank you for your word. Teach us now from your word. Make your people more like Christ and any unbelievers in this room, I pray that you draw them to faith, that you would do what only you can do and you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. A heart to believe this glorious good news of the gospel, and I pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, put your finger in Romans 7, and then just go, go back to Romans chapter 1, and we're just going to take a quick little refresher course through 
where we are since we've been out of it for two months, and Romans 7 is one of the more difficult chapters in the whole Bible. It, would, it wouldn't serve us well if we just jumped into Romans 7 a little cold. So we're going we're gonna to kind of warm ourselves up in Romans. So Romans is this, this great letter that Paul has written. It's really the most comprehensive letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament. It's, it's, it's not exhaustive, and it doesn't tell us all that there is to know about the gospel or good doctrine. But it is Paul's most comprehensive letter. It's his most theological. It's his most doctrinal letter in the New Testament. And the, 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 the issue at hand in Romans, this is really important for you to understand, the overarching issue that Paul is wanting to address in Romans, you could say a lot of things to, to, in answer to that, but I think one way of saying it is that the issue Paul is, is trying to tackle in Romans is how... Can unrighteous people, how can guilty sinners be reconciled to a holy, righteous God? In a sense, Paul is writing Romans as a justification of God that he would let anybody who's fallen, which is the whole world, back into fellowship with him. And so, really, Paul is explaining the gospel through that lens. And he starts in Romans chapter 1 in verse 16 and 17. In fact, Ricky quoted this verse as he was praying. And as he was praying and reading scripture, I just wanted to dance. I mean, come on. Verse 16 of Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And that phrase, the righteousness of God, is speaking not so much of the inherent righteousness of God in the sense of his character and his holiness, although that is certainly true, but what verse 17 is referring to is not the righteousness that God is, but the righteousness that God gives. And so what Paul is saying here is that the gospel is the good news that a holy, righteous God gives his righteousness, he makes the unrighteous righteous through faith. In fact, Martin Luther, when he was a Catholic monk in the early 1500s, that verse, verse 17 of Romans chapter 1, is what sparked his, his true understanding, his recapturing of the biblical, biblical gospel. Because what he had thought up to that point was that verse 17 was referring to the holiness, the character of God, and he dreaded the character and holiness of God because he knew that he was unrighteous, and he knew that God was righteous, and he knew that there was no way that he could ever approach a righteous God. But when he saw that actually Paul, in verse 17 wasn't referring in the phrase the righteousness of God to the inherent holiness of God, but the aspect of God's righteousness that he gives as a gift whereby the unrighteous can be made righteous. Luther said that it was like a door that swung open to paradise for him. And it kicked off this little thing we like to call the Reformation. And then in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, through midway through Romans chapter 3, Paul explains why we need the righteousness of God because we are guilty sinners, all of us. Whether we're Gentiles and we have the law written on our hearts or whether we are Jews and we have the law written on tablets of stone, all of us have broken God's law and because of that we are separated from a holy God. And so Paul is explaining the dilemma whereby we need the righteousness of God that we don't have. 
Because we are all, all of us, all of us, Romans 3.23, fall short of the glory of God. And in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, a turn happens. Paul starts with the answer. After two and a half chapters, really three and a half chapters of how guilty we are, he gets to the answer in Romans chapter 3 verse 21 where he says, but now a righteousness. In other words, the righteousness that God is going to give, that he's going to make people into, a righteousness from God comes apart from the law, the law which only had the power to convict us and make us guilty. The law is holy and it's good, and it's righteous, it's from God, but it is powerless to actually change and save. Its only power is to identify and to convict. And that's the quandary that all of us find ourselves in. And in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, now here's the answer. Here's the solution to the dilemma. God gives a righteousness apart from the law, and it's in Christ. And the most beautiful I know I can be hyperbolic and I can exaggerate at times, but this is not an exaggeration. Verses 21 through 26 of Romans chapter 3 is the greatest paragraph that has ever been written. And I'm not just saying that. Lots of other cats that are dead and are still getting their portraits painted in church history have said that. So there. And Paul says that Jesus has been put forward as a sacrifice to bear the wrath of God. And that he is received by faith. Not by our works, but by faith. So now, how are people made righteous? Not by the things that they do, but by the gift of God that he gives us, which is faith. Whereby then we turn and behold Jesus, who has died for us. And all of the work of Christ through faith can be ours if we believe in Jesus and not ourselves. And Paul then in Romans chapter 4 takes the most beautiful, glorious example of a life in the Old Testament, Abraham, who if there was anybody that could say, I was saved by my works, it would be Abraham in the mind of an Old Testament Jew. And Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4 is that even Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, even Abraham was not saved by his own works, but he was saved by faith. In fact, the greatest work maybe that he did in offering his son Isaac and circumcising himself and all of his progeny, even before he obeyed the Lord in that way, even before that, God gave him faith and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. So even the greatest example of the one who obeys God in the Old Testament, Abraham, even Abraham wasn't saved by his obedience. He was saved by the free gift of faith that God gave him. And that's what Romans chapter 4 is all about. And then Romans chapter 5, Paul then says, as a result of this fact that we have been justified or saved by faith, now we have peace with God. And now we are under the new reign of grace. Sin and the law no longer has dominion over you. It's grace that reigns. And then anticipating the objection that that radical message of grace would bring. In chapter 6 and 7, 
Paul answers two objections. In chapter six that we went through in October, Paul is answering the objection. Well, if it's grace and the law isn't what saves us, but it's grace, then can we just sort of do whatever we want because there's just gonna be more grace? And in Romans chapter six, Paul's answer is no. We don't get grace so that we would continue in sin, but we get grace so that we can overcome sin and glorify God. That's Romans chapter six. And then in Romans chapter 7, where we find ourselves today, Paul is taking up another objection. That, well, what of the law? Because remember, much of his audience is Jewish people, ethnically Jewish people who have converted, who have accepted the Messiah. They are Christians. And in this early century of Christianity, there was this, this theological wrestling of what application, what role does the Old Testament law have in the life of a New Testament believer? What do we do now with these centuries of commands that God gave Moses? And, and what do we do with him now? What role does it have in the life of a New Testament believer? And Romans chapter 7 is, is Paul's answer to that. Now, here's where Romans chapter 7 gets thorny before we work through these first six verses. Romans 7 is a famous chapter in the Bible because midway through Romans chapter 7, starting about verse 13 or so, through the end of the chapter, verse 25, Paul takes up this issue. He starts to use the personal form I, and he speaks about a struggle in his life, I. And he talks about how he has this great struggle with sin and the things that we, he doesn't want to do, he does. And the things that he knows that he he, he should do, he can't do. So there's this great internal, personal, first-person conflict that Paul uh, illustrates in the second half of Romans chapter 7 and how the law interacts with the sin that resides in himself, this I. And the debate is, is Paul talking about the Christian's experience with sin in other words, a regenerate person, a born-against person? Is this, is this normative for the Christian life, this defeat that we seem to see Paul experiencing in Romans chapter 7? Or is Paul speaking about his life before he became a Christian? Well, let me say this. That's what Romans chapter 7 is famous for. I actually think that's not the main issue. We're going to get to that. And I know some of you are anticipating, wondering where I fall on that. We're going to get to it. I actually think where you stand on that issue isn't so important. Again, we're going to get to it in the coming weeks. But the issue at hand through Romans 7 is what, what do we do with the Old Testament? What, what, what does God's holy law have to do with me today? And so let's look at Christ, the law, and the Christian. I want us to see a few truths as we work through verse, verses 1 through 6, if we have time. If not, if I just feel like we're going too far and we close it down and we've got to come around the Lord's table, then so be it. One of the, my New Year's resolutions is to just feel it a little bit more so I don't know where we're going to go. All right. I mean, I do know where we're going to go. Wait a minute. I made you nervous. I do know where we're going to go. I just don't know when we're going to get off the highway. All right. Okay. Let's go. The first thing that I want you to see is this. The first truth is that only death. Only death frees us from the law. Only death frees us from the law. Let's look at, at verses 1 through 3 again. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law, and when Paul uses that phrase law, I think he's speaking about more than just the Ten Commandments. He's speaking about the whole system 
of the Old Testament law, the sacrificial system, the ceremonial system of, of sacrifice, the, the civil law that regulated the life of, of, of ethnic uh, political Israel, the moral law of the Ten Commandments, this system of approaching God through his holy commands in the Old Testament. Some have counted all of these regulations and stipulations and commandments and laws in the Old Testament, and they come to be over 600 or so. And that's, that's what I think Paul has in view here. The law, don't you know that the law, second half of verse 1, is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And now in verses 2 and 3, he's going he's gonna to draw an analogy. And the analogy is marriage. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And so as a kind of aside, Paul uses the analogy of one of the things that the law says about marriage in the Old Testament, specifically in Deuteronomy. And he says that, the marriage covenant between a man and a woman is only to be broken by death. Now, what Paul is saying here in the first three verses of Romans chapter 7 is not an exhaustive teaching on the theology or doctrine of marriage in the Bible. In the New Testament, specifically in Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, and then Paul later on in 1 Corinthians 7, fill out what the Bible says about marriage and the exception clauses for the breaking of a marriage. In the Gospels, Jesus speaks about how sexual immorality, chronic unrepentant infidelity is a legitimate reason for the breaking of the marriage covenant. And in 1 Corinthians 7, I think about verse 15, Paul speaks about how if an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, that that is a legitimate reason for a Christian to be separated or released from a marriage covenant. But in broad terms, Paul's not wanting to establish a full theology of marriage here. He's speaking generally, and this should be a chastisement to us in our sort of easy divorce culture. He's saying that marriage is such a commitment that the only thing that should break it is death. And he is using that, which would have been clearly understood in his first century audience, He's using that analogy of the seriousness of the binding of marriage as an analogy to show what our relationship to the law is. And this, friends, this should chastise us. In, in, our, in our kind of easy divorce culture, marriage is not mainly about our subjective feelings. Marriage is meant under the sovereignty and authorship of God. It's meant to be a display of the covenant between Christ and his bride, the church. And God's people should not float in and out of marriages simply because they fall in and out of love. Amen. And if there's anybody in this room who's on the brink of that, or maybe you have gotten tired of your spouse, the understanding of the scriptures is that the only thing that separates from you from that person is death. Now again, I want to add, and this is not an exhaustive teaching on marriage, that there are some exception clauses in the New Testament for chronic, unrepentant infidelity and abandonment. 
marriage is serious. And Paul is using marriage as an, as an example. And I want to say also that if you're in this room, and again, this is not the main point of this text, so I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's such, a, it's such, a, it's such a, uh, an emotional issue in our culture and for many of us in this room, is that if there is anybody in this room who is divorced or maybe finds himself having endured an unbiblical divorce, dear, dear one, dear one, hear me on this. Know that the grace of the gospel covers all sin that is turned from and repented of. And so you need not live in some sort of chronic state of guilt. In fact, when Paul is speaking about marriage and divorce in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, if you find yourself in a kind of unbiblical situation, then remain as you are. If you were divorced unbiblically and now you're remarried to somebody else, you don't need to now look at this scripture and untangle all of that and think that you are sort of in a perpetual state of adultery. No, that's not the case. Remain as you are. The point at hand right now for us, though, is to see that the only thing that releases somebody from this obligation to the holy code of God is death. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7, 1 through 3. And then in verse 4, he says, how, how, how are we going to get out of this contract, this, this binding obligation? Because he said in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6 that we are now no longer under the law. So if the only thing that releases you from the law is death and is Christians now under grace, how did we get out from underneath this law that only death can separate us from, how do we get from there to where we are now? Paul answers the question in verse 4, and here's the truth that I want us to see, is that Christians have died to the law. We have died to the law through Christ. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. What is Paul saying? He is saying that the Christian life is not the addition of some religious principles or ethic. It is first death. We have died to our old self. So Paul can now be consistent in his theology and his thought because he just said the only way to get released from the holy command of God that none of us can live up to is to die. And what he's saying is that in a spiritual sense, to be a Christian is to have died to your old self. Do you see that? Now contrast that with the mumbo-jumbo, watered-down junk of modern American evangelicalism of adding Jesus to yourself so that he can help you out. It's like a Doobie Brothers song. Jesus is sure just all right with me. As if he's something you can add to your life to help you be a better you. Friends, the only way you can come to Christ is to die to you. And how do we die to ourselves? Even that is something that we can't do. What do we do? We died to the law through the body of Christ. So that brings up this beautiful and central and important doctrine that we looked at in Romans chapter 6, and it is the doctrine of our union, our joining together with Christ. So flip over one chapter to Romans chapter 6. Let me read verses 1 through 5 to you again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? Because remember, at Romans chapter 5, Paul is basically saying, now grace 
reigns in your life. Sin no longer reigns in your life. You've been transferred from one kingdom to the other. And at the end of chapter five, he makes this bold and audacious statement that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And so the possible objection that he's handling in Romans chapter six, well, if grace abounds and it doesn't matter how much sin, grace, there's enough grace to cover my sin, then I can just continue to sin and grace will cover it, right? It's this idea, this theological air of antinomianism against the commands of God is what that word means. It's a kind of cheap grace. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul is saying, no, there's no way that you can continue to sin freely if you're truly a Christian because what has happened to you is your old self died with Christ and a new you rose together with him and now spiritually you have been united together with Christ. Now it's no longer you who lives, Galatians 2.20, but it's Christ who lives in you. And look what he says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Verse five, super important. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, this is critical. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that the Christian life is not a distant transaction where you remain as you are and you make a cognitive decision, a kind of accumulation of the facts where you have weighed the empirical evidence and you decide to follow Jesus and add him to your life so that you can now do better. That's what Paul says. That is not the Christian life. He says that you have died and you've been resurrected by God. And when you get baptized, that's what baptismal waters are supposed to portray, that we are going down into the water, the flood waters of God's wrath, and we are being raised again from the flood of God's judgment into newness of life with Jesus. So although we may feel the same, although we may look the same, something eternal and fundamentally central and spiritual has happened in every person's life that has been reborn, they have been united with Christ. And you know what that means? Oh man. It means it means it means that it means that everything that's his is, is, is yours. It means that all his righteousness is yours. It, it means that it means that all your sin he took and removed and he died for it because Jesus was innocent. He didn't need to die. He died for us. And because he's God and he's perfect, his death cancels, handles, removes our sin. I just stepped on my glasses. <laughs> now, I think I'll be all right. Yeah, I mean, maybe not. Thank you, Ronaldo. 
the special anointing on these ones right here. <laughs> and so what has Jesus done with the law? How can we say that we've died to the law? Because Jesus satisfied the justice of the law for us. Friends, understand your salvation. It's not that God is up there with a four-leaf clover saying he loves me, he loves me not, and you are a decent little moral American, and God decided to pick you for his team. The law of God is against us in our sin. And the law doesn't just get kind of wiped out. At the end of the Old Testament, God doesn't shake the etch-a-sketch because his system didn't work. God's law abides forever. How will it be fulfilled? How will the righteousness of God be satisfied? By Christ on the cross. Listen to what Colossians chapter 2 says about what Jesus did to the law. And if we're in him, this is our relationship. This is what Jesus did for us when we were with him in his death and his resurrection. Listen to Colossians 2 verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By, listen to this, this is what Jesus did on the cross. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So the holy, righteous, perfect, good law of God rightly convicted us on the cross and said, you are guilty. And there's nothing we can do about it. And Jesus took our place, folded us into his grace, died with us, for us, on our behalf, and satisfied the righteous requirement of the law. And then look what verse 15 says. Well, let's keep going to verse 14. Forgiveness by... Canceling the record of this that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And look what verse 15 says. Verse 15 says, there was a cosmic peanut gallery mocking us because of our sin. Jesus canceled the record of debt that the holy, righteous God of the universe had against us. And then in verse 15, it says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So listen, friends, our greatest problem is the holy God of the universe that we have all offended, that we have all sinned against, which has separated us from him. And because he is life, to be separated from life is death. That's our biggest problem. How will unrighteous people be made righteous? Not through their own righteousness, because we're dead. How can a dead person make himself righteous? And the good news of the gospel is that a holy God who we could never appease made a way for us to be right with him through his son. And so our greatest need was met on the cross. But verse 15 says that there were these rulers and authorities. And Paul, when he uses that phrase, he's referring to demonic powers. This wickedness of of fallen angels, Lucifer, that are mocking Christians. And so even though our greatest problem is God, there are spiritual forces of wickedness that are piggybacking on our failure and mocking us. And so not only, does, not only does Jesus cancel our greatest need, which is God's holiness and satisfy it, he also shuts the mouths of the devil and all of his demons on the cross. 
Now, therefore, there is no condemnation. That's in Romans 8. Can't wait to get there. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Martin Luther said, and, and Luther was famous. Luther was, Luther was a little crazy. But God often uses crazy people to do great things. Luther said, I think we got this quote on the screen. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. That's what happened. That's what happened on the cross. We died to the demands of the law and the peanut gallery that accused us because we are in Christ. Friends, are you in Christ? If you're not in Christ, you're not dead to the law, whether you realize it or not. And on that day, when all of us shall surely die, we will all stand before our creator God. And everybody will have to answer the holy law of God. That is the only thing that displays his glory and his character and his beauty and his holiness. All of us will have to answer to that law on that day. And if you are not in Christ, you will have to answer that on your own. And friends, you, you, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. You have no hope on that day. You don't want to stand before a holy God and say, I was better than my neighbor or I wasn't as bad as I could have been. That's not the standard. But if you're in Christ, when you stand before a holy and perfect God, your answer will be, Christ, I died. I satisfied the law, not because of my righteousness, but because of his. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. And then verse 6, quickly, and this truth flows from this, is that now Christians belong to Christ. Back in Romans chapter 7. Now Christians belong to Christ and obey the law and the Spirit. And this is what we're going to handle for the next coming weeks in Romans chapter 7. Is okay, the law has been canceled. Sin has been defeated. Now, now that the law has been defeated... Can I just live however I want? And, and, and let, me, let me retract. Not defeated. That's not a good word. Scratch that from the record. Now that the law has been satisfied, because the law is good, it's holy, it's, it's, it stands forever. It's fulfilled in Christ. Now that the law has been satisfied, and the devil has been defeated, and sin has been defeated, how now are true Christians to live Paul answers that in verse 6 and in the rest of the chapter that we'll get into in the coming weeks. And let me read verse 6 again. But now we are released from the law not to live however we want. We are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that, conjunction, junction, what's your function? All of this happened 
so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul is actually going to call this new way of the Spirit in Romans chapter 8 and in other places like 1 Corinthians 9 and Galatians chapter 6. This new way of the Spirit is synonymous with this phrase, the law of the Spirit of life or the law of Christ. So to be a Christian is not just to be saved and forgiven, to live kind of however you want, but to be a Christian is to be saved and forgiven for our breaking of God's law, having the demons defeated in silence, now transferred over to allegiance to Jesus and to his law, the law of Christ, the law of love. And we're going to spend the coming weeks talking about all that that entails. John Bunyan is attributed with these words, and I'll end with this, and there's been some debate as to whether or not John Bunyan actually said these things, or if it was some other guy named John. <laughs> but either way, it's good, whether it was our boy Johnny B or somebody else, somebody named John in the 1600s said this, and it's good. He said, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. So we, let's just summarize this here before we come to the table. The law was against us. We had no chance of obeying a holy, righteous God. How will we ever stand before him? And all the things that we've done, all the things that we've thought about, the standard is not the horizontal relative morality of humanity around me. The standard is the holy creator God. How will I stand before him through Christ who satisfied the law on my behalf, was perfect in every way without sin, died, bore the wrath of God, raised again, raised me up. And now, while the old law, the law of the old covenant was satisfied and fulfilled, the new covenant law of the Spirit has been written in my heart along with the whole New Testament full of commands and exhortations on how we are to live now is written in my heart and I am now enabled where before I could not fight sin, now I am enabled to live in the new way according to the Spirit. And we link arms together in the local church as people very much in process Striving to live for God. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. I can't obey God's holy law. But better news the gospel brings. Jesus dies for us and rises again for us and gives us his spirit and allows and gives us wings that over our life through sanctification we can fly and obey and live for him. Friends, this is wonderful news. If you're a Christian, you should, you should worship him. If you're not, I just plead that God would give you eyes to see this. That, he, that Right now, I'm pleading that the Holy Spirit, through the holy law of God, would slay you. That he would mortify you. That he would kill you so that you can finally die and live. That's what you need to do. You need to not run off 
and come up with a to-do list for 2018, you need to die with Christ, which means turning away from trusting in yourself and put your hope in him as your own. And the only way you can do that is if God in his sovereign grace towards you gives you a new heart to believe that. Spurgeon said that that his hope when he preached the gospel didn't rest in the freeness of your will because your will, dear friend, if you don't know Jesus, your will is not free, it's enslaved. His hope did not rest in the freeness of the will, but in the freeness of grace. And my hope for you right now is not that you would turn in yourself and decide to try better, but that God would slay you and give you a new heart and the gift of faith whereby you can now behold Jesus and believe in him. And if you're hearing these words, and if your heart is beating, and you're wondering, I believe that is evidence that God is doing that for you right now. What do you need to do? Well, what do babies need to do when they're born? They just need to breathe. That's what you need to do now. You need to breathe. You need to turn away from yourself, look to Jesus, and trust in him, and say, there's lots of questions I have, but I know you're holy, and I'm not, and the only way is through trusting in Christ, and I do that right now. Friend, do that, I pray. Let's pray now and come to the table. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to come to this table that we will come to feast at, which is our custom on the first Sunday of every month to take a little piece of bread and to take a cup of juice and to remember Jesus' body and his blood that was spilled for us. If you're a believer in Jesus and you believe this gospel that I've preached you're welcome to come to this table. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you should not come to this table because we don't want you to confess something that you don't truly believe. We don't want to make a a hypocrite out of you. If you want to learn more about what it means to become a Christian, please don't leave this room without speaking to somebody that you know is a believer so that someday very soon you can come to this table as part of the family of God. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you all to stand. The ushers are going to put themselves around the sanctuary, and when you are ready, you can go to the table, retrieve your bread and your cup, and then hold on to those elements, and we'll receive them together as Reuben leads us to receive together as a faith family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful truth that we have died to the law through Christ. The implications of that are infinite. May you, may you give us the kind grace to just taste just a portion of all that that means. And may it empower your people in this room to live in the new way of the Spirit in obedience overcome sin, to break that habit, to sever that relationship, to to walk in victory over that nagging condemnation. Do it, I pray. And for my friends that are not believers in this room, let my meager words about your holy, perfect words be used as a hammer to break up the dry ground of their heart, and give them life, I pray. And as we come around your table, we, may we be satisfied in Jesus. In his name I pray these things.
Amen.